Welcome to episode 146 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Christian Hansen, founder and CEO of Slow. They call him the jeans guy, but there's more. Christian is a content creator, award-winning serial entrepreneur, explorer, and mission-driven founder currently on a journey to solve the climate crisis through eco-conscious capitalism, the power of consumerism, and data. Not to mention, he has 700,000 followers and almost 8 million likes on TikTok. This podcast is being brought to you, in part, by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. The Climate Champions is also sponsored by the Gridwise Alliance. Uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry, the Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. Slow fashion is a call to action against the exploitation of humanity for profit. Christian believes in transparency and invites the world on a journey to every factory, through every door and around every corner, proudly showcasing the ethical and sustainable practices behind slow products. And with one tribe, every pair of jeans sold, with actual usable pockets for women, protects 25 rainforest trees. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat. I'm here with Christian Hansen, founder and CEO of Slow. Christian, welcome to the Climate Champions. Well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm very excited. I watched some of your TikTok videos, which I never do. And I was even excited about the genes that you've developed. Well, thank you. It's funny you say that because the amount of people that we've brought onto the app who, you know, they'll message us and say, this is my first time on TikTok. How do I do this? It's probably one of my favorite compliments. So I'm, I'm really glad that you, you managed to come over and see it. Also, my wife isn't really a jeans person, but I'm going to get her a pair just to see how it goes. Awesome. I appreciate that. One of the more interesting things, not only are you trying to make a revolutionary new pair of jeans, for women, but you're doing it in a sustainable way, which is why I want to talk to you. What was your motivating moment for also adding the sustainability aspect? You know, I consider myself a, a lifelong tree hugger. I've always really, you know, cared about the environment. I grew up in the desert. And so I, I grew up in Dubai and we didn't have a lot of trees and we didn't have a lot of greenery, but I, I've always loved the idea of, you know, trying to care for our planet. And so, you know, from a young age, it was something that was really important to me. And one of my first jobs was, was working in, in sourcing for a, a large fashion company whom I probably shouldn't mention, but they produce several millions of, of pairs of jeans around the world. And uh, my job was to go to factories and negotiate deals and take a look around and, you know, meet people. And I went to just some of the worst factories on earth just the, just looking at you know literally children on sewing machines in these factories that were just pumping out gray water you know no water treatment nothing producing the genes that you know many of you listening probably have in your closet 
And something just didn't sit with me. And, you know, it didn't start as a denim, you know, idea like, oh, I'm going to go and fix denim. It started as, okay, let's try and work on the fashion industry. The fashion industry is responsible for more carbon emissions than both maritime shipping and also air travel combined. About 10% of the world's carbon is coming from your clothing. It really just kind of escalated one startup to the next. And we ended up stumbling into denim by accident. And that was kind of the rest is, is history, blending a passion and blending what we feel is a need. So this might not help your business very much, but that really makes an argument also for secondhanding clothes, pass me downs, buying from places that sell used clothes and doing whatever we can to make what we are already wearing and have already paid for and what already caused emissions last as long as possible. Believe it or not, I am actually controversially uh, against that. What I am basically getting at there is I don't think thrifting or, you know, buying secondhand clothes itself is bad. What I think it's created, unfortunately, though, is a justification cycle for fast fashion. And if you go to a thrift shop now in most major cities, five, six, seven years ago, the vast majority of clothing in there was vintage clothing, you know, from the 90s, from the early 2000s, made really, really well, you know, from you know the old school Levi's that would last you 25, 30 years if you didn't, you know, completely ruin them. What we've done now is we've created this justification cycle where people can go into, you know, a Zara and buy a pair of $30 jeans, wear them twice and drop them off to the thrift shop. And it's like, it's no longer my problem. But that gene was never made to last. It was never made to last the next 30 years. It's got another couple of cycles on it, but people have removed that responsibility from themselves. And so what I'm advocating for is that brands, it's a brand problem. It's not a consumer problem. Keep buying secondhand you know, clothing, but the brands need to stop lying that that is a solution. They need to look at it and go, if you are manufacturing using the cheapest quality material you can buy in sweatshops, you are not doing anything sustainably just because you have a buyback program. And just because you advocate for dropping things off at a thrift shop. And so I've gotten a couple of people who have come at me for that on TikTok, but I strongly believe that we need to look at the root cause. Well, if not thrift shop right now, because of the root cause isn't addressed yet, at least my own closet. Totally. Absolutely. That's a big one too. The ideology of just buying something, you know, to wear for an event or buying something to wear just a couple of times. That shift in consumer psychology over the last 15, 20 years in fashion has contributed to the birth of fast fashion. And, you know, whereas people used to build, you know, capsule closets where they would look for 10, 20, 30 pieces that they could, you know, mix and match and create phenomenal outfits from people now go shopping specifically for an outfit, specifically for an event. And, you know, apart from say, you know, a wedding or something like that. And even in that case, you can rewear those clothes it's created this consumer psychology of I'm going to go and buy something to wear it once. And we're trying very hard to change that ideology. One of my daughters got married recently, and so did a very close friends of the family. I consider them family. And they both are leaving it open, not those classic bridesmaid dresses that have to match you wear once. They're just choosing a couple of colors and saying, fit into this color scheme, buy something that you will wear again. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think the more that people realize that you can do that and it doesn't really make a difference, the better. You know, there's so many things that really we've just attached value to because of good marketing and because basically marketing over the years and movies and TV shows have convinced us that that's what we need to do. But the reality is that, you know, that Netflix effect is uh, is only, you know, hurting hurting the planet. 
What are your current personal drivers for helping to mitigate climate change? I'm really fortunate. I got to travel a lot growing up. My dad is a pilot. And so growing up, I got to do just, you know, just see a lot of the world. I've been to over 70 countries now, I'm nearing 150 cities. And so I've been able to see just about every biome that the world has. And it's beautiful. And it's, it's something that to me, we are ruining. And so my main personal driver is I genuinely really love this earth that we live on. And there's so many amazing, beautiful parts of it that are disappearing before our eyes solely due to consumerism and greed. And it's not something that's proportionally helping the world. It's disproportionately helping a very select group of people get incredibly wealthy on the backs of other people. And I don't feel that that's right. And that's why we've branded our company as a revolution because it is a revolution. And, you know, we're trying very very hard to change the ideology of, of the way that people think about fashion and the way that people think about consumerism. When you meet people that don't have a perception that there's anything wrong and they don't understand the data, don't believe the data, and they don't understand how clothes fit in and they don't understand how fashion fits in, how do you explain to them otherwise? It's the same argument to me, whether it's fashion or not. If there's something that's happening, in this case, climate change, and you don't believe in climate change, and I'm saying, hey, why don't we clean up an industry? Why don't we make things better? Why don't we make things built to last? We'll use fashion as the example. You know, if I'm saying to you, let me make you one pair of jeans that's built to last you five years versus you buying a pair every three months, that's basically going to continue to break down. You save money, you get a better quality product, and ultimately you get something that's built to last and doesn't pollute the planet. And if you don't believe that polluting the planet is a problem, you'll have needlessly made your closet higher quality, better overall, and saved yourself money. And instead, if you don't act on it, you're going to conti you know, continue to contribute to this problem that is very real and ultimately will lead to our demise. And so for me, it's a very simple solution. You know, one needlessly creates a better world. The other continues us you know, in this trajectory that none of us are really happy with. One of the amazing things about clean energy is that it costs less. Yeah. So the worst thing you do is save money and create a better world in the same stroke of change. I agree. You know, I'm originally from Alberta, you know, biggest oil, you know, part of Canada. And, you know, a lot of my friends now have changed jobs from working in the oil patch to installing solar panels and installing wind turbines. And Alberta's working on a huge solar project right now that's got all sorts of, you know, protests going on from people in oil. And the reality is that all of my friends who accepted the change and are now installing solar panels are making three or four times the money that they were making before doing less work. It's not labor intensive. It's not dangerous. The energy is cheaper. The energy is easier to acquire. And if you think climate change is a hoax, we'll have needlessly created cheaper, better energy and better jobs. Where is the downside? Exactly. Right now in Texas, their grid is very stressed out. And during the day when it's the hottest, they're also getting an incredible amount of solar energy, which basically is saving them. I don't know if they're talking about that. I mean, some of the politicians, but thank goodness the solar, really, given these hot, sunny days we're having all across the world. Absolutely. And you know, like that's that's something that I was very fortunate to grow up in Dubai, where they are an oil-based economy, but they're incredibly progressive when it comes to climate policies. And, you know, they've been building solar fields since the early 2000s, and they've seen the ocean and they've seen the wind and they've seen the land as one of the best possible ways to offset, which for them is their supply. Their economy is based on oil. Why would you burn your supply when you can sell it to people who need it? 
And so they've been generating green energy for years and it's worked incredibly efficiently. And so that's the question I would ask these people as well in Texas or Alberta and these different places, you produce a commodity that you want to sell that supports your economy. Why would you use your own supply if that's your primary goal is to sell it? Well, they are moving in a renewable direction, but then the question is, when people buy that supply, what are they doing with it? And we are in trouble as a planet. Agreed. Can you talk more about what your company, Slow, does? Sure. So Slow is the antithesis to fast fashion. And the goal is really to create a company in a supply chain that changes the ideology of fast fashion towards it's the way that we used to make clothes, where people would go to a tailor or people would go to a seamstress and they would have clothes made to order that are designed for their body, that are designed to fit, that are designed from what they actually want. So much of the fashion industry right now is about you know, setting trends. A, you know, a brand will make 100,000 jeans and they'll hire a celebrity and they'll get that celebrity to wear the jeans and then everyone is supposed to want that. We've tried to do the opposite. We ask people what they want and we make it for them. We make it for them, made to their, you know, made to their body, made to measure, made to order. And that's really the focus is to try and create a new fashion system where there is no waste. Every gene that's going into production already has an owner. We're not just guessing and making a batch of 10,000 and hoping that they sell. And we're hoping to move that from, you know, right now we're doing denim because it's where, you know, we found the, the necessary need. We want to do that with head to toe fashion where you can come to us and your entire closet ends up tailored to you with this, you know, the materials that you want, with the specifications that you want made for you and made to last. And I strongly believe that that experience is something that people think right now is super expensive and reserved for the ultra wealthy. But the reality is that you can do it at scale and you can do it affordably at scale. And that's what we're trying to do. So you want to bring custom tailoring to the masses, millions of people. As close as possible to custom tailoring. And I just have to be careful about saying that because right now, the way we basically work is we have a very, very, very large size set. Whereas, you know, a normal denim brand, they would have about 12 to 14 sizes. I have about 80. And so you give me your measurements and I match you to a size that I'm still creating, but we're talking within, you know, an inch of everything that you would have needed if I had made that, you know, in a tailored solution. We're now working towards building our own manufacturing facility where we will be able to do actual tailored jeans, you know, at scale if we want to. And we're going to expand from about 80 sizes to about 200. So our goal right now, if my math is, if my math is mathing, we'll have about 99% of the world's population will fit into one of our sizes like a tailored fit. And you're leveraging technology all over the place. You are because you are on TikTok to advertise your brand and Millions of people have seen what you have to say about slow use technology to have people order and measure themselves and communicate that to you. So although in some ways you're old fashioned, how you develop the clothing perspective, you also are taking advantage of tech. Absolutely. I mean, tech is really my, my background is kind of really, I, I consider myself a, a futurist. I, I love technology and. The craziest thing to me when I first started working in the fashion industry was how antiquated it was. We would go into a factory and I would be placing an order for a brand for you know tens of thousands of units. And they would be taking the order on pen and paper and handing it to a guy who signed it, who handed it to another guy who signed it. And looking at this going, what? This is how you're managing hundreds of thousands of pieces. And they're doing uh, you know, entire stock and inventory for material all by hand, you know, doing math by hand. And we looked at it and we went, this is an industry that's a trillion dollar industry that's producing hundreds of millions of garments, about 3 billion pairs of jeans are produced every year. 
And just about every major factory on earth is doing it with pen and paper. And so we looked at it and said, there's no possible way we are doing it that way. How do we inject technology everywhere we can to be able to understand the entire supply chain, understand the entire process and provide live data. And so what we're you know, moving forward towards will be the most technologically advanced fashion program of, of all time. I recently interviewed Andrew Beebe, who's a venture capitalist. And the analogy he made for me that I thought was excellent was that when the internet first started, some of us futurists, we were saying this is going to affect everybody's life and every industry. And some people thought it was just about taking orders online. What's going on right now is climate change mitigation is going to hit everything. Every industry is gonna to have to look at how they can create less emissions and help save the planet if we're gonna have a planet. And I think over time it has to happen because weather events are getting worse and worse and you've done both. So I wanna say hats off to you. You've taken an industry that wasn't sustainable and didn't leverage the internet and technology and you've brought both in one fell swoop. That's the goal. It's funny how many people we've pitched, you know, recently, whether it's people to work with us or, you know, as we started to build out this factory and, you know, it's been like, okay, yeah, here's the AI system that we're working on to match people to sizing and to basically do stock and inventory and reordering. And they're like, well, why would you do that? You can just hire someone to do that. And it's like, well, no, I don't want to hire someone to do that. And they're like, well, you know, it generates jobs. And it's like, okay, look, I understand that argument, but the reality is that we can create a better, more streamlined system using technology, and I can hire other people to do other things. You know, why are we creating obsolete positions to fill them for the sake of creating them? And that is really what got us into this problem to begin with. And so, you know, we've, we've kind of been in this back and forth with people where they're like, you don't need to add technology there. It's overcomplicating it. And I've had to say, look, I am adding technology here. I don't think it's overcomplicating it. I just think it's new. That's been a challenge, but it's been a fun one. Leveraging technology to not hire positions you don't need somebody for, but to grow very large and hire more skilled labor in many, many areas, that's a much better deal. I'm in an industry where I will never be able to automate putting together a pair of jeans entirely. I have very skilled tailors and very skilled seamstresses that put together jeans. I don't want to automate that. I don't need to. But if I can automate, you know, stock and I can automate everything else in the factory and operations and projects and queuing and understanding what needs to be made first and what needs to be made second and where things are going to ship and an order management system that doesn't need 10 people running it, I can then have more incredibly skilled tailors on more sewing machines creating more jeans. And so really the goal is to try and keep the entire system as small as possible while keeping the outcome as high as possible. And I think that technology allows you to do that. Can you talk about your prior background? How did you get to where you are today? Sure. Yes. Yeah, kind of an untraditional one. I wanted to be a hockey player. And so I went to, I went to boarding school for hockey. I played junior hockey. I was going to university for hockey. I got injured over and over and over again. And basically my body couldn't do it anymore. And I kind of had to pivot quickly. And I got lucky that I had always come from a bit of an entrepreneurial background and my family had always kind of supported that direction. And so I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start something and I'm going to build it. And I got lucky with a few different positions that I got, like the you know sourcing job. And I went from trade show to trade show and just you know tried to basically force my way into this industry that I was kind of fascinated with. And that was really it. It was just kind of one startup after the other. A couple worked, a couple didn't. And it kind of slowly got us towards, 
you know, this project, which, you know, happened completely by accident, but it's been uh, kind of a roller coaster since. And, you know, that background allowed me to kind of become a jack of all trades. And, you know, I did a little bit of marketing, I did a little bit of content, a little bit of management. And so I got to build quite a vast skill set, you know, working on all these different projects that I've now been able to use as an entrepreneur. And so very fortunately, I had the network and the people and, you know, my family to fall back on and they helped me and I'm lucky to be where I am. So you mentioned being lucky a number of times. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had along the way? Oh man, I mean, this project has just been a giant, you know, setback. It's it's a square peg in a round hole situation, you know, right now where we are a slow fashion system in a fast fashion world. And I mean, we we would set out and, you know, our original manufacturing that we started in, in September, sat down in Italy with our, our manufacturers and they told us, yeah, we can do this in four weeks. It ended up taking four months. Uh, it's very hard to convince people to wait for their jeans for four months. <laughs> it's just been, you know, one after the other in terms of problems. And we were very fortunate that from the rhetoric of this is a revolution and I'm sorry, there's going to be problems. And we've tried to, you know, be incredibly transparent with people at every single stage of, you know, whether it be production or shipping or logistics, we've just run into problems because the system just doesn't exist or it's just not built to handle you know, what we are. I have 5,000 variants of jeans right now. And, you know, no warehouse wants to have 5,000 different variants that they have to store and find and ship. So we had to build our own. No factory wants to produce 5,000 different variants where they're all one-offs and they make one after the other. So really the entire thing has been a giant setback, but we've been able to learn so much from it that we now have all of the information, the knowledge that we need to go and build it ourselves. And that's really the direction that we're moving. It's super exciting. And when you try to change an entire industry that has existed forever, yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah, it's, it's you know, tough as has been, you know, an understatement. I thought it was going to be tough. It's, it's just been, it, it's, it's currently impossible. And I don't think anything is impossible because you can build it. But truly with what exists right now, what we are trying to do at scale is impossible. But what we've managed to learn is how to make it possible. And we're very fortunate to have such a powerful community behind us. You know, we've sold almost 10,000 pairs and the wait times have been ridiculously long. And, you know, people have held, you know, held faith regardless. And people love the David versus Goliath of, I have no idea how I'm going to solve this problem, but I'm going to. And if you want to support me, support me. And, you know, people feel like they're a part of what we're doing and they are, and they're the reason that we're able to do what we do. It is exciting. I'm very excited for the next few months. You're getting me excited. (laughs) Good. That's my job. (laughs) Definitely getting a pair for my wife. So you talked about the impossibility of what you're trying to do. What successes are you most proud of? Largely, I would say just really being able to look in the face of there's no way that this is going to work in finding a way. And, you know, I'm a big believer in startups at the beginning, they're not scalable and that's okay. But if you can figure out how to become scalable, that's worth doing the legwork for. And so, so much of what we've done at the beginning is completely unscalable. You know, at the beginning, I was spending six, seven, eight, nine hours a day responding to comments and emails. And, you know, we had over 700,000 people submit inquiries, uh, you know, on a forum or on comments or telling us what to do, what genes to make and how to fix the industry and what was wrong with the industry. And we went through all of them. And, you know, that to me is what we're most proud of is as a team collectively, we have put in so much time and energy doing things that 
you know, completely unscalable. But what it's done is given us this foundation and this community that is now scalable. And we now have this unbelievable book of information. There's hundreds of pages of information of what we need to do to actually attack this industry head on. And so we were given the privilege and it is a completely a privilege to fail and to make mistakes and people stood by us. And so now we want to give those same people who stood by us the opportunity to have exactly what we set out to build. Did you have like a hat trick moment where your arms went up in the air and you're like, yes, yes and no. I still don't think the first launch has even hit me and it's been eight months. It's just been one of those situations where there's just been so much going on back to back that, you know, every day is a new problem and, you know, every day is a new adventure. And I don't think I've even really processed it. The, the, the one that does you know stick out is probably our launch day where, you know, first launch ever, we spent about six months preparing for it. And, you know, 10 minutes in, you know, we basically sold out and it was like, oh my God, wait, this is real. You know, we just made almost $400,000 in half an hour. I, you know, I'm, I was, I was 23 years old and it's like, okay, that's, this is cool. You know, I made some videos on TikTok. I accidentally bought a pair of women's jeans. All of this happened. Wow. And so that really did hit me with a, okay, this is real. But about a millisecond later, it was like, okay, it's showtime. Now we actually have to get these people jeans. They've now given us the money. And so, you know, it's been a lot of fun and I stop and I try to be present and, you know, grateful and think about the journey that we've been on. But I don't think I'm a person that's ever satisfied. I just, I always want to build more and I always want to build better. You know, buying a woman's pair of jeans by accident, that's a great origin story. Yeah, I, I, it's it's thanks to COVID. <laughs> I, I can't, I, I still can't believe it. You know, I, I walked into a shop and I thought they were men's jeans. You know, I'm almost six foot four. And so I thought there wasn't a chance in hell that there would be women's jeans. You know, they had their, my inseam. I'm like, okay, yep. No one, no one's making, you know, that inseam for women and just walked out the store with them. And that was it. And if that had not happened and at the time I had, you know, I think about 50 followers on TikTok. I don't even know what possessed me in that moment to make a video about it. I was just so angry walking to this metro station. Like I need to talk to somebody about this. I don't even know who to talk to about this. How do you, who do you explain this to? I'm gonna make a video about it. And had I not made that video, I don't even know what I would be doing right now to be completely honest, probably some other entrepreneurial project, but definitely would have been jeans. <laughs> yeah. It's in your blood, man. I love it. I would be a horrible employee. And I know that it's just, you know, I really truly am fortunate growing up my parents really did instill uh, an idea of, you know, question everything and not in kind of a conspiracy theory kind of way in a, if this, if someone says, this is how this works, ask them why. And so I was kind of always what I did growing up. And it's like, well, this is how fashion works. You know, we make a hundred thousand pairs of jeans at a time and, you know, we maybe don't sell 40,000 of them, but it's fine. We just throw them in a landfill. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like, why? Why do we do that? Oh, well, we sell them at a margin that it's profitable. So, you know, that's just how it is. That's just the way that it is. And nothing makes me more upset than those words. That's just the way that it is. It's not. Everything is, is a social construct. Everything is created by us and everything can be changed by us if we want to. And right now, more than ever, there is a crisis that is showing us that we need to change those things. And so for me, that no matter what I would be doing, I know that it would, you know, trying to be changing some sort of system. If your scorecard is only money, 
you're going to get very odd behavior because it only follows the dollar and it's not going to be good for anything else. So you really do need a balanced scorecard, a way to look at your life, your company, your government, and make sure things are in balance, not just dollars. I agree. I agree. If people valued legacy the, the way that they valued you know, money, I think the world would be a much, much better place. You know, I don't want to be on my deathbed and, you know, I'm confident that I'll make a lot of money in my life. And I know that, and, you know, that's not uh, that's not a brag. That's nothing. It's just the reality is that I'm very much do believe that if you do something that you love and you're good at it, you will make money. I don't care. I'm not impressed by money. I don't really, I don't really need money. I'm happy. And I love our, I love our world. And I wish if people looked at legacy, you know, I want to die one day and go, wow, I planted a hundred billion trees, or, you know, I did something unbelievable that affected the lives of millions of people. And I think if we started to look that way as a world, like, what am I going to do today in the 24 hours that I have today, that's going to make the world just a little bit better. And we looked at that the same way that I made $10,000 today. If I walked into a bar and I said, I made $10,000 today, people would be like, wow, that's amazing. Versus if I walked in, I said, I planted a thousand trees today. They'd be like, why? And that to me, I think is a very much at the root cause of a lot of our issues in our capitalistic system that we have right now. Sorry, I'm on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> For me, it was a journey. I grew up lower middle class. So at first in my life, I did want to make money. And then I found out that I could make money and also do good for the world. And I got very invested in climate change mitigation as I worked for somebody else. And so there was more balance there. But as soon as I could, when I had enough money that I didn't have to focus on money, I went on my own. And now I get to 100% of the time that I'm working dedicated to helping to mitigate climate change, because that's what I want to do. So I do have to say money is an important tool, an important yeah. factor in being able to do that. I couldn't do it if I didn't have that money. I agree entirely. And, you know, a lot of people would probably listen to my response and they would say, you know, that's an incredibly privileged standpoint. And, you know, look at you, you are a white male. You went to an Ivy League university. Of course, you don't understand, you know, what that's like. And I 100% agree with that. It's the truth. Absolutely. And I didn't come from tons and tons of money, but my parents, you know, when I was born, they had nothing and they worked really hard and they instilled that in us. But I also believe that in the world that we live in now, anyone can do that. You can now, with the power of the internet, the most powerful tool that we ever created in the history of humanity, you can go on there and you can you know, learn the skills that you actually want to be doing and someone will pay you for them. There's so much money in the world. I remember going to this talk a little while ago and it was kind of a mixture. It was about climate and it was also got into money management and you know, I don't even know how. But someone said, you know, the number one financial advice that people don't give is make more money. And, you know, people always want to talk about cut down on this and stop eating this and stop doing that and stop buying this. But the reality is that just make more money. And I think you can take that philosophy also with climate change mitigation, where we look at it and it's not just about offsetting. It's not just about I bought this, so I have to do this. Why do we have to do this as a response you know, to this? Consumerism happens, we have to respond this way. Why do we not look at consumerism as a potential force for good? And we look at it and go, humans are never going to stop buying things. Humans are never going to want to stop making more money. You know, they're always going to want more. But if we can add a layer that does something good for the world every single time, you know, Visa or MasterCard is charged and we can do something about that, why do we not? 
And that was really the core thing that got me super excited about building a fashion company that is sustainable because denim is dirty, you know, fashion is dirty, but if we can do it the best way possible, and we can also add a layer that helps the world with every purchase, then that's a step in the right direction in my perspective. I know that you plant 25 trees for every pair of jeans sold, and you've already talked about how you're not going to throw away 40% of what you produce because you're going to produce it as it's ordered and as it matches people that you're selling to. So I understand those methods of sustainability. What else are you doing for sustainability? Sure. First and foremost, the great part is we don't actually plant the trees. And there's a, we work with a fantastic agency called One Tribe in the UK. My bad. And One Tribe's philosophy is really interesting. And it's the main reason that I love, I love working with them. They do not believe in offsetting by just planting little saplings you know, that have a horrible survivability rate over time. They want to keep the big, giant carbon suckers in the ground. And so they're buying land in the Amazon and in endangered places that, you know, there's land being sold for logging and mining and all of those different kinds of destructive industries. And they're giving that land back to indigenous groups and people. And so the idea is let's keep those 25 trees that have been in the ground for a hundred years and are already doing, you know, fantastic work for, you know, carbon versus let's go and plant, you know, little teeny tiny seven inch sapling. And so we work with one tribe for our offsetting. And then it's really just about the entire supply chain and ensuring that you know where everything is coming from. You know, cotton can be done sustainably. It can be. You can you can buy cotton, conventional cotton that is horrible for the environment, it requires unbelievable amount of water. It has no origin. You have no idea what people are being paid. And you know, it's like blood cotton. Or you can buy from responsible sources. You know, how you process that cotton, how you dye that cotton, how you weave that cotton, where you're doing that at every single stage. For me right now, we're not perfect. And we have, you know, a ways to go before I really will say that our genes are completely sustainable. But in terms of what is available to us right now and the, the, you know, what we have, we just try to basically understand and know every single part of our supply chain. And if there's a way that we can spend a little bit more money to make the process better, we do. And so as we move towards our own facility where we have more end-to-end -end control, I'll have even better answers. But right now for me, it's about understanding the system and being willing to spend those extra dollars to be able to try and produce a better, you know, a better product for the planet. Yeah. Thank you so much for correcting me on the planting versus keeping them alive. I agree completely. I think keeping the ones that we have in the ground is so important. I think both are important. And it's great to hear that you're keeping our lungs being lungs. When you think about the earth 10, 20, 30 years from now, do you think the planet's going to make it? How do you think human race is going to go? Oh, God. Um, the trajectory is not good. But at the same time, as a futurist, I do strongly believe in the power of technology. And I do believe that the technology that will fix the problem doesn't exist yet. And the really, really interesting thing about humanity is that we do you know, generally solve our problems. And you know, at some point, that will eventually not be true. But I do think that there's so much money to be made in this crisis that even the capitalistic forces that got us into this problem will potentially get us out of them. And, you know, you're seeing it right now with, with advances in, you know, they're turning carbon into bricks and they're turning carbon into, you know, usable commodities. And I think that once we've basically created the right technologies that find a way to essentially profit off of the, the creation of a new green economy, we will see, you know, noticeable improvement. 
until that time, I'm incredibly worried. I, I do feel that as a whole, we are moving in the right direction. It's not fast enough, but we are moving in the right direction. There's a lot of token politics right now and a lot of people that are saying things, you know, for the sake of getting elected. But there are some amazing companies out there and some amazing climate leaders that are doing some phenomenal things. You know, you've, seen, you've had a bunch of them on your podcast going through all of the names. And I was like, I know that name. I know that name. Brilliant people. And the wonderful thing about these types of problems is it does attract the most intellectual people on the planet who want to solve the world's problems. And I do believe that there is enough brain power out there to find a solution. That was a very uplifting answer. Thank you. Because sometimes I get depressed after the answers I get to that question. You already said that the pandemic was key to your origin story, but with regards to climate change, how do you think the pandemic impacted it? I think you know, positively and negatively. I think as a whole, we did get a glimpse into what the world would look like pollution-wise with less traffic. And we saw you know, wildlife you know, bounce back and we saw people look at for the first time and go, oh my God, if we don't send 150 cargo ships through that port all of a sudden there's you know amazing reefs that are spawning you know here and there and i think the data that we have you know we generated as a result of just seeing what would happen if the world paused for a moment i do believe that data will ultimately help us in solving some of those issues that we you know have just talked about i'm not entirely happy with you know what's come out of it in regards to conspiracy i think unfortunately that COVID really did accelerate a lot of what was already happening with an ideological warfare that we're dealing with right now with fringe groups of people who really, really strongly believe that everyone is out to get them and the internet and forcing everyone to interact in, you know, in, in, in anonymous forms really did speed up what was, you know, unfortunately already a growing anti-climate movement inevitably there will be a boiling point and i'm hoping that people start to realize that a lot of it the misinformation you know is misinformation and it changes but i think there's positives and negatives the the thing that worries me even more than just the rising temperatures is is really that rising ideological conflict wow it also concerns me very much in ways beyond climate change even there's a lot of danger out there agreed what advice do you have for people that might be listening to this podcast looking for advice other than buying your jeans? Really, it's the advice that I was, I was given that I think changed my life. And it's that someone cares about what you have to say. I think that's what kind of, you know, I say often, I don't know what possessed me to make that video. I think it was because at the time I was, I was listening to a lot of different, you know, podcasts and YouTubers and people that just said, just make things. You know, you may think that your life is boring or you may think that the thing that you're passionate about is boring. Or The reality is that the internet has billions of users and there are probably tens of millions of people that think you are incredibly interesting. The fact that right now, potentially we're, you know, being listened to by a bunch of people who really, really, really like, you know, climate mitigation. That is a niche topic that some people would go, oh my God, I would never make a podcast about that. I love it, but I would never make a podcast about that. You did. And there's people listening to these words right now. And so I think it's just do it, just make content. The world has never had a powerful platform, you know, like a TikTok, like a YouTube, like an Instagram. If you're passionate about something, whether that's climate mitigation or starting a revolution or starting a company or a brand that does good, it all starts with just posting consistently, talking about it, and you will find your people because they will find you. The algorithms are literally designed for people to find you. Do you have any questions for me? 
you've done a lot of these episodes now. How has your perspective shifted from just being someone who's interested in climate mitigation, having a career in it, you know, corporate side of things through now you interview all sorts of people like me. How has your perspective changed on things maybe as fatalistic as, you know, are we all screwed? You know, you spend you spend a lot of time talking to people who some maybe think we do and other people are maybe optimistic like I am. How's your perspective changed as a result of, of this? Well, on the good side, there are people like yourself and hundreds of thousands, I believe, that are working on this problem in some way and dedicating themselves to it. And that is great and it makes me happy. Unfortunately, if you look at the weather that's happening right now and some of the scientists I've talked to, where they really have models they've been working on, they understand the data and they see what's going on. There's just a lot of negative surprises out there in the models where things that they thought were 10 to one shots are happening and things are getting worse and they're getting worse fast. And that allows them to make the models more accurate, but the models get worse. So I'm very concerned that we are in trouble. We are in trouble that might not have a solution in the time frame that we need. It's about urgency. And I just don't know that the urgency is there. I would agree with that, unfortunately. I was a downer just there. No, it's realism, right? Which I think is important too, because as much as I would consider myself, you know, painfully optimistic at times, that's not always a good thing. It needs to be, you know, the yin yang effect where it's like, look, we can fix this and we need to do it. But at the same time, there needs to be actionable ways that we can do that in a time frame that actually works. Uh, we don't have a hundred years. Yeah. Okay. And that may be not best outlook for the future. And that's my fault. I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Oh, you didn't want to be a climate shrugger. And that's why you are a lifelong tree hugger. The short term lasting of clothes, it infuriates your venom. And that's why you wanted to create a quality denim. When you see your earth getting ruined, it gets up your pities. And that's because you've been to 150 cities. I love it when you speak. It's with such a passion. You're on a mission to end fast fashion. You're creating jobs, not destroying them, and that is great. It's okay when you automate. When you were young, your body got all knocky, and that's because you played, I think, a little too much hockey. Slow fashion ubiquity, that is your goal, but it's kind of like fitting a square peg into a round hole. You bought women's jean by accident, but it took you to glory. And I have to tell you again, that's a great origin story. Keeping trees in the ground, that's your vibe. That's why you partner with one tribe. I love how you leverage future customers for financing. The jeans look and feel great. People are a glancing sustainable slow clothing it's such a great cause to take a stance in it makes me jump up and down i want to be dancing thank you so much christian hansen <laughs> that was sweet <laughs> i love it It was very exciting to hear Christian's passion for changing the industry. 
We need all arrows in the quiver, all industries, all governments, all people, all countries to change, embrace sustainability, and reduce emissions. It was great to talk to a leader genuinely laser-focused on the mission. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rate it five stars if you're an Apple user and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Christian reminds each one of us that people care what we have to say. You may think your passions are boring, but there are millions of people out there that think you are incredibly interesting. So just do it. Talk about your passion. You will find people and they will find you. And together, you will help to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.